0: Art of the Review listeners, it's Yelena here. I want to let you know that instead of a regular Art of the Review episode this week, we are bringing you a very special interview with historian Matt Friedman about his podcast, No Sounds Are Forbidden. This podcast, which comes out fortnightly on the H Podcast Network, is a fascinating series about the history of avant-garde music told by a historian and a genuine music lover. Matt was kind enough to speak with me on mic about his work on No Sounds Are Forbidden and about the state of academic podcasting. I think H podcast subscribers will find Matt's insights and practical tips invaluable. So stay tuned for my interview with Matt Friedman and next week for episode five of No Sounds Are Forbidden. Podcast producer Matthew Friedman teaches U.S. and digital history at Rutgers Newark, and his research focuses on 20th century American sound cultures and avant-garde music. Matt has been producing a fortnightly podcast on avant-garde music called No Sounds Are Forbidden. The first three episodes cover the early history of avant-garde music with Arnold Schoenberg's *Pierrot Lunaire, and 12-tone composition method and then turns to the intimate connections between avant-garde music and cinema. The hour-or-so long episodes are masterfully produced and give listeners many chances to listen to extended clips with expert commentary about the historical and aesthetic features of the pieces under discussion. Alongside the podcast, which comes out on H Podcast and can be found on iTunes, Matt produces the companion website, nosoundsforbidden.org, where he posts playlists, commentary, and additional essays. We wanted to bring Matt in to tell us about the podcast. So Matt, can you tell the listeners about the genesis of No Sounds Are Forbidden? Why did you make this podcast and what do you hope to do with it?
1: Back in a previous life, I'd worked in radio at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and in local radio in Montreal. And I've Always kind of wanted to get back to that um, radio is actually something that that i 've always been interested in and uh, when I was doing the research uh, for uh, my dissertation and uh, subsequent research, I, I found myself thinking that you know this is the kind of thing that would work really well in radio, and uh, too bad radio doesn 't exist anymore, um, which is sad because I used to listen to it all the time but Podcasts now are, you know, the the radio of the 21st century and the radio of the digital world. And so it seemed to be a thing to do. The other thing, of course, is that I really love this music. I find it sometimes difficult to uh, communicate that to people. Many people have this sort of uh, visceral reaction to it when they hear avant-garde or modern music or postmodern music or anything like that. And I think one of the things I'd like to do is sort of break down those barriers that people have so they can hear it. I mean, this is interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, my second question was going to be about your work as a radio producer, uh, which you did before you became an academic. So I was wondering if you're looking to reach a more popular audience with this podcast, and maybe if you could just talk a little bit about the differences between working in radio and working in
1: academia. Well, um, to answer that question, I think I have to sort of, you know, get to the trajectory uh, that brought me to the academy. And, and, and I actually got into uh, teaching um, through teaching journalism at uh, Concordia University in Montreal way back in another lifetime. And I discovered that, you know, a lot of what I enjoyed about radio, that is speaking on topics of, of current events or cultural import or, or, or things like this, Um, was something that I could also do in the classroom. And so I I don't think I've ever really seen much of a a, uh, division between doing radio. And you have to remember, I I worked um, in public radio. You know, I I worked in the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So I wasn't exactly, you know, spinning the latest Justin Bieber discs. I mean, he wasn't (laughs) even born yet, as far as I know. And so to some extent, you know, I saw what I was doing in in, uh, teaching journalism to be an extension of that. Having said this, yes, um, I know that much of my knowledge of music history and music theory and my interest in, in avant-garde music is highly specialized. I think uh, I have had to sort of um, popularize the message, which I think is actually a good thing. Um, I think that uh, has actually allowed me to think you know, in more depth about uh, the importance of uh, avant-garde generally in, in autistic terms, but also the avant-garde in terms of 20th century music and 21st century music. Um, I have to justify it to an audience, and so I have to justify it to myself. And I think that um, is, 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 you know, I think one of the great values of doing this podcast.
0: That sounds a lot like teaching. Having to figure out how to explain something to students really forces you to get to the crux of things.
1: Well, it is. And and, and I enjoy teaching. Um, I think it's, you know, one of the most important things that I do. I think, to be honest, my teaching is more important than my research, uh, in many ways. I mean, socially more important than my research. I mean, whether or not... We understand the relationship between uh, 20th century sound environments and uh, the emergence of um, certain avant-garde critiques of modernism uh, isn't going to change the world. Um, Whether or not I have a student who comes out of one of my classes uh, able to sort of see the world in in critical terms, I think will. I I think that I am a teacher ultimately. And so, yeah, I mean, I think to a large extent what I'm trying to do uh, in the podcast is you know, to to take that kind of approach, you know, a much more popular approach. I I wish it was more interactive, though, like teaching. You know, I wish I could Uh see if anyone was sleeping in the back rows while I was talking.
0: (laughs) Well, hopefully you'll get feedback on the episodes as you keep going. Um, So I wanted to turn a little bit to the whole phenomenon of academic podcasting. I wanted to ask you if you listen to other academic podcasts and What effect, if any, do you think podcasting is having on the historical profession or on avant-garde music for that matter?
1: Well, I do listen to some. I mean, I think the one that I listen to, uh, have listened to uh, most is uh, Ben Franklin's World, um, which is you know, a, a brilliant piece of work. I think one of the things that podcasting does, and, and I think we can say this generally about digital humanities and the new digital tools available for us, is it does allow us to think outside of the seminar room um, and certainly think outside of outside of our, our, our offices. One of the things that I find interesting, um, I think most interesting about uh, some of the academic podcasting that I've heard is it tends to be on one hand very focused, uh, you know, it tends to to um, address a very, very specific uh, set of circumstances and ideas um, in, in, in great detail and granularity. But on the other hand, um, it is also sort of broader, I mean, in the sense that it's speaking to... An audience somewhat more diverse than what you would find at, you know, an AHA conference or something like that. I mean, and that's, and that's almost by definition and, and perhaps by design. And I think that's actually one of the great advantages of um, some of these, you know, digital um, knowledge delivery technologies for want of a better term. In terms of avant-garde music, it does provide an outlet for what would normally be, um, you know, let's face it, a non-commercial kind of uh, musical art. You don't get people lining up um, for uh, avant-garde or electroacoustic music concerts. Um, it's something that in in many ways, once people hear, they they, they find it resonates with them. But on the other hand, Um, they don't know it's going to resonate with them until they hear it. So it's a a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. One of the things that's interesting is that um, many of the classical music radio stations, WQXR here in New York, for example, um, they've actually turned to uh, web-based programming and and, uh, internet radio. One of the things that WQXR has is they have a service called Q2, which is a 24-hour radio stream. Uh, featuring music by living composers, and they wouldn 't have been able to do that um in the old model of broadcasting um, so I think podcasting and sort of digital broadcasting generally have actually opened up all these possibilities because it 's sort of removed the sort of the bottom line calculation of uh, reaching audiences and i think I think that 's the brave new world there is a problem with it and and that is Um, You know, in in radio back in the old days, you know, you put out a program and people would tune into it often accidentally, you know, you had that uh, moment, uh, the possibility of serendipity. One of the problems that I think podcasting presents is the difficulty of you know finding an audience? You know the audience already has to exist for it, or you have to go out there and market for it. Um, you have to uh, you know find people to listen to you, um, and you know, people don't always know what they want to listen to. I mean, you know, I'm sure you know anyone listening to this can remember that time when they're driving in their car um, and a song comes on the radio that they have never heard before and it's like wow that is amazing uh, and they didn't know they were looking for it until they heard it and I think that's one of the challenges that we face um, with this medium I think there are ways around it I think there are ways around it but I think those are questions that we'll have to address as we further develop the medium
0: yeah, I mean, the Art of the Review listeners will know that there are very few podcast reviewers in mainstream media. And actually, one of the more interesting websites that has been doing podcast reviewing, The Tambor, actually just Closed last week, and they had been doing a great job highlighting emerging podcasts and interesting episodes and they were very active in that realm. but um, the newspapers and, and you know outlets have been a little bit slow on that
1: part of the problem, I think is that radio and television traditionally or conventionally are geographically based um, when you 're listening to a, a radio program. It's something which is being broadcast um, in your area, I mean, typically, I mean, there are network radio uh, shows and whatnot, but, you know, a radio show or a television program or something like that has a clear identity that is closely related to your own sort of communal or geographical experience. Digital media don't do that, and um, to a large extent, digital media subvert that, uh, you know, it's, it's it's sort of the promise and the peril of uh, the, the global village, right? Um, The global village is both, you know, everywhere and and it's also nowhere. Um, And I think part of the problem with that for podcasts is that we don't have that sort of built-in social connection, uh, relatability uh, with our audience. And, you know, that's one of the things we have to overcome. Uh, You know, we like, you know, one of the things I think is fascinating um, about digital media is how it's completely... You know, erased, subverted, elighted, uh the experience of place, and somehow we have to figure that out. Um, you know, and we and you can look at this in blogs too if you ever take a look at your wordpress uh, stats it's always amazing when you see how many of a um your readers come from say the united states or canada or you know somewhere else uh, you know in in north america and how many of them come from places that you could never possibly imagine reaching and yet they do and i think to some extent that sort of um, creates uh, an obligation in some ways to think sort of much more broadly. Um, I I, I don't think we have to think um, non-geographically, but I think we have to expand our understanding of what, you know, our geographical space and our geographical social um, environment is. Or is that way too theoretical?
0: (laughs) No, no, not at all. Not at all. I think that there are, you know, people in the startup world looking to find ways to connect the, the established social media, you know, to get podcasts in there. But it's hard. Podcasts rarely go viral, for example, because you can't just, you know, snippet a piece and say, look at this, check this piece of audio out. Um it's a it's a slower
1: thing. I, I think that's certainly part I that I think that is, you know, possibly the you know, the the you know, one of the major, probably the major part of it. There's another part of it too, which is in some ways sort of related to, you know, digital online archiving and online uh, curation. You know, there are all these fantastic digital history sites out there, for example. There's, there's the South Asian American History Project at Rutgers Newark. There's the um, Queer Newark Oral History Project and all these things. Um, there are history sites set up by uh, museums and archives. And all of these fantastic resources, but they're not like archives, and this is something I've encountered teaching digital history. The experience that a student has doing research in a digital database or a digital archive is fundamentally different from the experience that he or she is going to have in a physical or geographical archive. There is a certain attenuation um, of the experience. Um, there is a, la- a lack of tactility. And I think the same sort of thing happens with a a podcast you know, like I said, you don't hear it in your car, you don't uh, just pick it up uh when you're listening to your transistor radio at the beach, although no one ever listens to this transistor radio at all, so it's a metaphor um, you know and so you know it you you don't just come upon it you have to you know choose to to go see this and I think One of the things that this does is it it makes it sort of more of an ephemeral uh, experience. It's not something that you're going to sort of ritualize and and weave into the tapestry of your life. It's something that uh, you might download if you have it to, you know, set it to automatically download on on iTunes and uh, listen to um, when you've got, you know, some time alone. I mean, one of the things I'm fascinated about when I'm producing No Sounds Are Forbidden is wondering what order people are going to listen to this in. Um, You know, I, I have a very clear sense of how I'm building my narrative, but I'm also conscious of the fact that there's no guarantee that my listeners are going to listen to the narrative in the order that I'm presenting it. And there's no guarantee that the elements, the parts of the narrative that I think are important are elements that they're going to listen to or whether they're just going to skip over it because, you know, at the end of the day, hell, you know, I'm, I, don't care about Pierrot Lunair anyways, and they'll see what comes up next. And you know, I mean, and I understand that. I mean, there's no reason why they should. I think one of the challenges that podcast producers generally have to face is how to build that kind of a relationship with listeners uh, so it doesn't become ephemeral. You know, some, you know, podcasts, you know, like the podcast version of This American Life Which is not a program I particularly enjoy listening to, but I do know people who do really enjoy listening to it. And they will download the podcast and they will listen to it and it will become this, you know, they can't wait until the next version is out or what have you. And I think they do that very well by sort of stringing along an experience and building a relationship um, with their listeners i don 't know how successful i 'm going to be at doing that I, I, I recognize at you know this point i 'm what as of today four finished episodes into this so um, i don 't know how well i 'm going to be able to build that relationship, but I think ultimately that 's the goal, and to some extent that 's very much the goal of teaching to get back to uh, the question of teaching. Is that anyone who's ever spent any time in the classroom knows that you don't just stand up in front of the the class at the lectern pontificating. Um, That's not how you teach. Um, Your students will not retain what you're talking about. The final exams will be terrible. I'm grading those this week, so we'll see how that's going to turn out. Um, But... You don't do that. The way you teach is you build a relationship with your students. You draw them into a story. You have a dialogue. Um, you find ways to um, incorporate uh, their interests, their lives, and their perspectives into uh, you know what you're teaching. Um, you find ways. You know, like teaching history. You know, um, when I'm teaching uh, the 1968 um, Democratic Convention. Um, and the the police riot in, in, in Grant Park. Um, one of the things that I have to do is sort of relate this to the experience that my students have. you know There's this horrific moment that every history professor ultimately faces when you stand up in front of a class and um, you say to the class, well, you all remember Ronald Reagan and there's like you know of course they don't. Um, and so one thing you have to do is to engage with, Ronald Reagan, for example, in the 1980s in terms that they understand. And so it becomes this, this, this sort of relationship and this incredibly fluid and plastic and protean uh, exposition. And, and, and I think ultimately that's what a podcast has to be. But you know, the funny thing about this is that this is something that people in radio have known since the 1920s. If you listen to radio, uh, really good radio... You know, I'll give you an example of this. Um, When I was a kid, the house I grew up in, we listened to uh, a program called As It Happens uh, every night at 6.30. It was on at 6.30 every night for 90 minutes on CBC Radio. And uh, it was like having uh, the hosts, uh, Alan Maitland and Barbara Frum, uh, over for dinner uh, every night. And we sit there and we listen to to, to the show. And one of the things that the producers and hosts of this show knew knew how to do is how to create a relationship to speak to that person there, sitting at a table in, you know, suburban Montreal, uh, at that particular moment, but also to speak to the person sitting in, you know, um, downtown Toronto or suburban Vancouver or Winnipeg or something like that, at the same time to make that connection and that kind of relationship a something that's real and. I think that's one of the things that the best podcasts do. Um, Ben Franklin's world does that, which is why I keep going back to it, right? I mean, um, I think um, that's sort of the goal that I'm trying to achieve uh, in No Sounds Are Forbidden. I I want the people who are listening to my podcast to think that, you know, it's not just – you know, some anonymous guy in the New York area spouting off about, you know, John Cage and, and Milton Babbitt and, and, and all of that stuff. But it's someone with whom they're having a conversation, even if it is only kind of one sided at that time. And I think that's how we do this.
0: Well, it's a really interesting, also just generic challenge to create something that is both linear and nonlinear, where the listener has a lot more agency over the listening experience which is a good segue to my next question which is what advice technical or otherwise would you give to academics who want to produce podcasts
1: I think the software and the technology is sometimes a little daunting. And and, and one of the conversations that I've had with some colleagues about uh, producing podcasts is, you know, what kind of software should I use? You know, can I, should I use Audacity? Should I use uh, Hindenburg? Uh, Should I use this? Should I use that? And I think those are the wrong questions to ask. Um, You know, you use the software that you use, whether you're recording something on, um, you know, whatever you're using to record, whether it's, you know, Skype. I use a, a fairly full-featured digital audio workstation uh, program called uh, Cakewalk Sonar to record, mostly because I come from a music background, and that's what I use in my music studio. Um, but I, I think the first thing is, you know, forget about the, the software. That's the kind of thing that'll work itself out. I think you have to um, budget your time. It can be enormously time-consuming. You might think that uh, 30 minutes of uh, podcasting will take 30 minutes of time to produce, which is a little bit like thinking that 3 hours a week <laughs> of teaching is only 3 hours a week of work uh which it isn't um actually the ratio is you know roughly the same it's i think it's about a you know uh i would say I spend probably about eight hours uh, of work on every one hour of uh, programming. So I mean, it's about an eight to one uh, ratio. So first of all, be aware of how much work this is going to be. And also budget your time. Um, you know, you have to keep to a fairly regular schedule in order for it to have any kind of you know, legitimacy and for people to know where to find it. The other thing, and, and I can't stress this enough, is invest in a good microphone. Um, I hear a number of podcasts that, um, are recorded, uh, it would have been recorded well enough. I mean, they sound like they're recorded on a phone, um, in, uh, in the Starbucks and, and some of them are, and look, that's okay. I mean, you know, you have to do it somewhere. But in terms of uh, preparing the audio, you always have to bear in mind that someone has to listen to this. And so the clink of of cups and the the background noise of Starbucks uh, on your your relatively small phone uh, microphone is actually going to be hard to listen to. And you have to bear in mind that, you know, you're actually asking people to listen to this. So, you know, don't don't torture them. So invest in a good microphone. Um, Also learn how to stage your sound so that um, you get the minimum amount of a audio interference uh, in your podcast and i mean that and that's a difficult thing i've I'm, i still haven't got it worked out you know um i'm still trying to find a way to make sure that the audio that i produce has a decent enough audio sound to it and i'm not really quite sure i'm there yet but i mean these those are the things that you need to bear in mind and i think the last thing and, and, and I, perhaps the most important thing is you know remember your focus um People are listening to you for a reason or you want people to listen to you for a reason. Well, you know, they're listening to what you have to say. They don't really care too much about you. So focus um, on your project. Is that good, good advice? I don't know.
0: I think that's all great advice. Um so finally in conclusion can you tease some of what uh, some of the episodes that you have in the works
1: Well the one uh that is uh airing airing do we say airing the one
0: <laughs> posting
1: <laughs> that works uh the one that i'm posting tomorrow which is monday um is about the first great revolution in electronic music which is uh the revolution of tape music and tape recording which is far more important to the avant-garde and to music generally uh, than many people uh, would imagine. Uh, And in two weeks, I will be uh, exploring the relationship of avant-garde music to space, Um, not outer space, but um, interior architectural space and the great outdoors, um, and how you know particularly in 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 the uh 60s uh 1960s uh 1970s and and today composers have been very very interested in 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 using sort of the uh spatial elements of uh sound and music as a central component uh, of their art
0: well i can't stress enough how much i enjoy no sounds Are forbidden and I hope that listeners will go check it out. You can find it on the H podcast network, which is networks.hnet.org hpodcast H podcast. And you can find it in the menu or you can just search for No Sounds Are Forbidden in iTunes and visit Matt's companion website, nosoundsforbidden.org. Thank you so much for coming on, Matt. Uh, I hope you have a good rest of your Sunday and grading goes smoothly.
1: Well, thank you very much, Elena. I am hoping the grading goes smoothly. I'm actually hoping it goes quickly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, perhaps that even more.
1: Thank you.